April is Dalit History Month. Dalit refers to people who belong to the lowest caste in India. Dalits face discrimination in Indian society, including in housing, education, jobs, and access to public services. This month, Women's March Geneva read Coming Out as Dalit by U.S.-based author Yashka Dutt. This memoir takes us through her own history, growing up and hiding her caste, her journey coming out with her caste, while she weaves in historical context and shows us how Dalit discrimination rights and activism have evolved. To discuss these issues with us, we have Manjula Pradeep. Manjula is a human rights activist working for the rights of marginalized communities, in particular Dalits and women, for almost three decades in India. She has represented issues of caste and gender-based violence and discrimination at the UN and the European Parliament for around 15 years. She was the co-chair of the International Dalit Solidarity Network. Manjula is the former executive director of Navsarjan Trust, one of the largest Dalit rights organizations in India. She has taken up cases of extreme forms of violence and atrocities on women and Dalits, and in particular, sexual violence on minor girls and women from marginalized communities. Two and a half years ago, Manjula founded the Wise Act of Youth Visioning and Engagement Foundation, focusing on the rights and leadership of marginalized youth and women in India. She's also the director of campaigns at the Dalit Human Rights Defenders Network. Recently, along with key women leaders from marginalized communities, Manjula founded the National Council of Women Leaders to build the leadership of marginalized women activists at the grassroots level and to advocate on the issues of marginalized women through research studies and campaigns. Manjula, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can you please start off by telling us how you got started in caste activism? Like activism, I was like 22 years old when I started. So it was in 1992 uh, when uh, I decided to uh, join a small group of uh, uh, men from the community, from the Dalit community uh, in a state called Gujarat in the western part of India. And uh, I never realized that uh, my journey of joining a small group of uh, of Dalit community men will end me to become an activist uh, because I come from the community. So in that sense, I was very passionate about uh, the issues. But uh, until I start working in the villages and in the rural areas of Gujarat, I realized that how important it is for me uh, as a representative of, from the community that I should uh, involve myself and engage very closely with the grassroots community who face extreme forms of violence and discrimination. So since then, I decided to become an activist. Can you tell us about the type of work that you do at the Wave Foundation? Mm -hmm. uh, Wave Foundation was founded in August uh, 2018. Uh, and uh, when I decided to found the organization, I was very clear that what I have uh, learned from my 20s, seven years of experience at the grassroots with different organizations, but in particular Navsarjan, where I led the organization. So I decided that uh, because I represent a community which is from the most marginalized communities in India, I should not forget uh, those, uh, those communities who are also facing uh, similar forms of discrimination and violence, which includes the, the Adivasis, who are called as tribals in India, and also the religious minorities such as uh, Muslims. So when I decided to found the organization, I found this organization with a very young uh, man. Uh, his name is Rehan and, uh, and he comes from the Muslim community. So two of us uh, decided to form this organization. 
the the main objective of the organization was to build the leadership of not only the grassroots women activists or young uh, men and women but it was also to uh, nurture the the young minds into a right direction and also to heal them and to console them with, because the kind of oppression and the kind of violence which we face in india because of our identities also affects our daily lives and it's it was very important that we wanted to organize the youth because india has one of the largest populations of youth in the world so we decided that we will build the leadership of the youth uh, we will uh, give them training we will guide them and we will build the capacities so that they can become good uh, human beings and good leaders in future and also to help those women activists who are working at the grassroots and they are not being recognized in the society because they come from the marginalized communities but they are also working at the grassroots so because i uh, represent the community but i i worked at the grassroots so i i realized how important the work the grassroots community does and because of the grassroots organizing and mobilizing that the movement is sustaining so with that uh, determination in mind i decided to set up wave foundation Uh, can you tell us about the types of grassroots activism that you're doing at Ways? Because I worked in one particular state for 27 years, I decided to expand my work. Although I was working in other states as well when I was in nerve surgeon, but I thought that I should do something which uh, where I can bring the youth and the women from different parts of the state. So I started building alliances with grassroots organizations in different parts of the country. and mainly by those who are led by the dalit women or tribal women or muslim women leaders so that was mm, the core objective and I, i decided to align with other organizations apart from that i and rehan we started traveling in different parts of india and we basically we started organizing uh, conferences and uh, workshops on making the youth to understand what are their rights given in the constitution and what are the laws to protect their rights so that was the most important uh, thing we started doing immediately in collaboration with a local organization in different parts of the state when i started this organization unfortunately there were no resources with me so what i what i did was i used my savings to run the organization initially and with the collaboration it was a little easier for me to work with with the youth uh, because i already had worked with nerve surgeon and there i had already trained women leaders in eight states in india so those women were already leading the organization so with them i collaborated and i started uh, not only organizing but i think the first thing we did was of training and capacity building and during that time it wasn't that that it was just organizing or or giving uh, training but we handled several cases of extreme forms of violence so uh, there was a case if you rem- uh, I'm, i'm not sure whether you know about it but in 2016 there were four dalit youth uh, who were brutally uh, attacked by the cow vigilante in uh, a, a town called una in gujarat and at that time i was the head of nerve surgeon and that was the same year when i was asked to leave the organization which was i was leading so it wasn't that i decided to leave but they asked me to leave because i was becoming a very uh, strong individual or as a leader and as you know that women from the marginalized community they hardly uh, attain leadership positions so at that time when i was handling the case of una and i departed from this organization but when i was in wave foundation i kept helping the family uh, of these youth and also these four youth who were uh, flogged by the cow vigilante and I, i followed up the case and at the moment the the judicial trial is happening 
apart from that i started guiding women activists to how to do fact finding and how to uh, do interventions specifically in cases of extreme forms of violence based on caste and gender so through wave foundation we started doing that and uh, we also last year when there was covid situation and it was a difficult time in india and then when the government announced the lockdown we realized that there were several migrant laborers from different parts of the country who were uh, left in a difficult situation where they they couldn't go back to their homes and but they need uh, daily survival so they wanted ration kits so through our helpline which is called as relief and aid helpline uh, it, it is called raha we started distributing uh, ration kits uh, wherever we got the support from a small donor and we also got support from friends apart from that with that helpline we also collaborated with other organization in different parts of the country because we used to get calls on the helpline so we started ensuring that the the people who call us they could get ration kits from the local organization so that work was undertaken last year and with that i also decided to uh, start a training of grassroots leaders in four states uh, one of the state is where i come from gujarat uh, the other state is uttar pradesh where my parents come from the the third state is bihar and the fourth is chatisgarh so i started i wanted to do the training and i i knew that i couldn't travel because of covid so i i selected them uh, through the local organizations i shortlisted them i did interviews on the phone and on uh, yeah and i selected 20, uh, 30 of them and uh, from october i last year i started training them online i started giving them training every month we we have we have two, three to four uh, training uh, on different aspects and then as i started working with them closely online i started guiding them and then from in this year in 2021 in the month of jan and feb uh, there was like we could travel so we all met in person and i hold a workshop for them in uh, in lucknow a city in uttar pradesh and while i was with them i realized how difficult it was when we do online but when we met i realized how difficult their lives are so they, we have created profiles of each of these young women uh, about their daily life struggle what uh, violence they have gone through interestingly this uh, group of young women are from uh, dalit uh, communities also from the tribal communities and also from the muslim communities so all the three communities women are being trained by us what else we are doing yeah we uh, we we are doing a research on no space for women's work uh, it is in collaboration with another organization called zuban and where we are documenting uh, stories of women in uttar pradesh uh, who whose lives were affected because of covid so it was pre covid and post covid how they survived and and these women are mainly from muslim and dalit families so that documentation is happening so we are going to document at least 50 cases stories of these women and during that time i also decided to organize a campaign which would focus on the most inhuman practice of manual scavenging in india where people do the cleaning of of human excrement with bare hands so i decided uttar pradesh because as you know last year hathras incident happened where a 19 year old woman was gang raped and she was uh, murdered so i visited them last year in november and we we, we also did intervention in the supreme court and also in the high court in, in uttar pradesh so when i visited the family i realized that they come from the same community 
So, and Uttar Pradesh has the highest uh, population of manual scavengers in the country, and it has the la- highest population of Dalits in India. So, we decided that we do a campaign, which is the the hashtag is Leave No Dalit Woman Behind. And with that campaign, what we did was uh, we trained uh, two women activists who are uh, who are part of the training, and they come from the scavenging community. And train we trained them of how to use cam- phones to make create videos. So, if you go on Instagram or if you go on Facebook, uh, you will see the videos which these women have uh, made on Wave Foundation's social media platform. And we also have put stories of those young women and girls who didn't wanted to show their themselves on the video. So uh, that campaign ended just uh, recently on 15th April, post Dr. Ambedkar's birth anniversary. And the next campaign which we are planning through in collaboration of National Council of Women Leaders is a campaign to end caste-based sexual violence, which will start in hopefully in the month of June. Thank you. Um, You've mentioned sexual violence um, and other types of physical violence. Can you go a little bit more into different types of discrimination that Dalit people face today, uh, in particular Dalit women? I think uh, the forms of discrimination which they face, it's not that it wasn't there in the past, but and things have changed. Things have not changed much. Um, Like uh, what I saw 20, 30 years back, uh, many things are still, still there undisciplined practices like the Dalit people, uh, they cannot, specifically Dalit women, because of patriarchy, they have to fetch the water. uh, And if they don't have a tap water, or if they don't have a well in their locality, they have to go to a public place and there they face discrimination where they can't fetch the water by themselves. So there is the entire notion of purity of your body. And that's why the the Dalit women and girls, they can't touch the, the, the water source. That's one of the uh, discrimination, which I think it's very important to notice. Also, uh, when there are still villages where when the Dalit people, they go to buy something in the shop, the shops are owned by the dominant caste. When they buy the things and when they give the money, they can't give the money in the hand and at the shop. And then the water is sprinkled on, on that money to purify it. So that's another practice which I just uh, came to know when I was I visited Hathras, the place where this incident happened. Yes. One more thing I wanted to say that uh, as you uh, see, each of the neighborhood in India is divided based on caste. So if you think of untouchability, the neighborhood of Dalit community is separate from the neighborhood of any other dominant caste. So that itself is an untouchability because it's like a segregation. But I believe that because of that, they, there is no development in in majority of the Dalit localities. There is no proper uh, roads. There There is no proper sanitation. There is no electricity, uh, no water facilities. So all those issues are there. Majority of the Dalit communities, they practice uh, Hindu religion, and uh, but they are not allowed to enter the temples. They have to stand outside the temple. So when they worship, they have to worship from outside. Now, if uh, a Dalit woman is pregnant and uh, she she needs medical help in the village, the midwives they don't want to touch their bodies. Yeah, and majority of them they would they feel that if they touch her, her then they will get defiled. So you know, we did a study on understanding untouchability in Gujarat. In that is 2010, but I still believe that that study is still relevant, where we identified 98 forms of untouchability practices. And I can share with you the the report. I would say that the kind of discrimination is, uh, if you are from the community, you can immediately make out that you are being discriminated. 
but many times you no know, people don't realize it that this is a discrimination like they are not allowed to enter the houses of the dominant caste so they have to stand outside there is separate cup kept for you for the dalit community uh, if they visit a dominant caste house they have to drink tea or water in that uh, vessel yeah so and then there is um, yeah it's difficult to say because little emotional but uh, like when you uh, i saw that there are villages uh, where uh, when a dalit is riding a bicycle and if a dominant caste person comes from the opposite side they will get down from the bicycle to show the respect in uh, gujarat uh, there are villages where you have to say ba or bapu ba means mother and bapu means father to that warrior caste woman and man so if you want to uh, you address a, a woman from the warrior caste as ba and the man as uh, bapu and if you don't then you are beaten up so there are feudal areas where you have to follow these uh, norms and conditions if you want to live in that village manjula is untouchability still legal in india as per the indian constitution and article 17 of the indian constitution uh, untouchability is been banned in india so but it's it still being practiced it's still being practiced and there is a law also to uh, to punish those who practice untouchability if uh, you wouldn't mind sharing can you share with us any types of personal discrimination that you have faced the first one was when i was 9 years old um i was in the fourth grade and and there was this uh, brahmin teacher in our classroom uh and because my surname doesn't show my caste as as yashika's book i have not read but coming out as dalit i to some extent and to very much extent i also faced the same situation because my parents uh, are from north india from uttar pradesh and uh, my father uh, who is no more but he was a government officer and he was the only uh, sibling in the entire family who got educated so because of his education he got a government job and he moved from uttar pradesh to gujarat and where i was born and uh, see my father never wanted us to know what is our caste uh, so he gave us a surname where we couldn't make out what is our caste so this discrimination in terms of your own caste identity matters in india in terms of what your surname is so my surname pradeep doesn't make any sense of what caste i come from uh, so uh, when we were enrolled in the school we and as a child i wasn't knowing that but as i was growing up and in the and this instance of which I, which happened was in fourth grade and this lady was a brahmin teacher and uh, i i thought that uh, she uh, insulted me or humiliated me by by uh, asking uh, the students to to give ranking to around 10 of us to say that who is well dressed uh, who is clean and who is mo- shabby and dirty and i know my mother uh, always dresses used to dress up uh, very nicely and i used to have a very nice uniform and clean uniform with shoes and i was in the classroom and uh, i was also asked to stand with other nine children uh, nine students and the, uh, each the stu- each of the student they started saying that okay she one two three four i was the last and uh, i i was in tears uh, it wasn't easy for me to accept that uh, uh, i was dirty and shabby because i was not but i somehow i realized that uh, 
maybe this teacher wanted to bully me or or and i do remember there was another uh, time in the same uh, class i think this is the age also for us to realize that we are different um there were students who were uh, making some noise we all of us were like chatting when the teacher was not there and when she entered she started saying to everyone please uh, stop your gossiping and all those things chatting and everything but she came close to me and she just gave me a big slap on my face i st- i can't forget that uh, that <laughs> slap from the teacher and uh, and then i started crying instead of asking me to drink water she she asked uh, asked someone to get water for her so this is what uh, was the first experience and i am also survivor of violence so i have faced violence in my, at a very young age at the age of 4 where i was uh, raped by four men and that was uh, i don't know whether it was my what identity it was but uh, i was i felt that i was a very vulnerable person um a four year old child who doesn't knew uh, what's happening around her and uh, yeah yeah and it was like uh, um a neighborhood where uh, i just could i'm really sorry i just want to unmute and say i am too it's just horrifying you don't have to go on majula okay we can go on to really another subject yeah it's it's not easy for uh, us to survive in that sense that uh, you when you live in the village and you live in the locality with you live in the community you know you know that this is your caste and this is your identity but when you are away from your community when you are away from your village it, it's more difficult it's very difficult for i can tell you that uh, in that way my family has totally uh, adjusted to the culture of the dominant community to survive so my parents never wanted us to uh, really come out as dalit in the sense that they will say that see usually there are stereotypes about dalits in india like the color of your skin or how you look so my father used to tell us how will people say that you are, we are dalits so that is the the myth about us i have visited united states so i know uh, the entire black rights movement and uh, the color of your skin matters in in the western part of it, of the world in our uh, context your color of the skin doesn't show what your caste is to some extent in the southern part of india people still think that uh, your color of your skin matters so if you are darker in the skin which means you are from the dalit community so they call they are called as black caste but because we are from north india and so the race is different and that's why the skin colors of the people in north india from the community are also uh, a little lighter and then the other aspect is also we we are all mixed race that's also we have to understand that how i was born like my forefathers our genes who knows because in the us or in a, as you know that lot of black women were raped uh, by the white man i think it would have been the similar situation in india also so uh, that's how the caste system within the caste system then those who became superior and they started violating the rights of women in uh, and they started raping the women and that is the, the truth in india like 
women in india uh, the instances of rape of uh, dalit women is like uh, anything and uh, because of my own personal experience and also my commitment also towards this entire issue i i i worked more on this issue because of that and i'm still working on it so identity itself uh, is very difficult to describe just by how you look in india uh, and uh, i'm speaking what it meant to speak spoken i thought so. <laughs> can you tell us about tensions that exist between dalit feminism and mainstream feminism in india my goodness <laughs> uh the tension is there because uh, the women from the dominant caste uh, they think that they are the door bearers of the feminist movement and for me the problem is that what whichever issue they have come upon is what what was affecting or what is affecting the rights of the most marginalized women in india so whether there was a big movement which started in 1984 where a tribal woman was raped uh, by police and the women from the most upper caste community the brahmin community they led that movement and said that there has to be legal reforms in india and all those things happened and there was some kind of uh, change legal change policy level changes and then there another case happened in 96 i think and there is a middle aged woman who was gang raped uh, and she was a dalit woman in rajasthan and because of her the vishaka guidelines came and then there was this entire debate on uh, preventing sexual harassment at workplace but this woman who who suffered the gang rape she never got justice until now the women's movement and the feminist women they said oh there was a big achievement we have we got law we have got this prevention of sexual harassment at workplace which came up in 2013 there was vishaka guidelines so all those things came up me as a, and there are several of us who are from the community we uh, either dalit tribal or muslim women for us the question comes is where is our space because uh, they never want to speak about intersectionality what dr kimberly crenshaw talked about i met her a few times in when she visited india also i met her and i also met her in us the point is intersectionality is so important because you can't see a particular uh, issue or a problem with just one lens and gender for uh, with the feminist lens is just gender but gender doesn't mean just gender it is beyond that there is subcaste there is religion there is class there is caste uh, there is uh, ethnicity there so many things there's layers of uh, graded inequality uh, which are not being accepted in that sense that uh, consciously it looks like the feminist movement doesn't want to touch upon those aspects so for them domestic violence is domestic violence but they don't want to say that who is the most domestic violence and then a caste based uh, violence uh, for them they they totally ignore and they don't even want to recognize that and uh, sexual violence on dalit women i have not seen many feminists who who go and support the survivors of sexual violence very few of us are there from the community and uh, the, the other they just want to make it up like yeah they will just say they will give a statement and all that but uh, that doesn't solve the problem and then giving space to leadership of us the marginalized women we all have struggled so hard and created our own space and uh, fortunately uh, i do have friends from different uh, communities so they could be from the dominant caste and but uh, but with one condition that they treat me as an equal and i and there is a respect between us the, the relationship is there and they uh, 
they believe in leadership of marginalized women and that's why they are my friends but there is a huge number of women and feminists who who relate with me but uh, but uh, for their own uh, interest and uh, i don't think there is a sisterhood in that sense that uh, everybody want because you know that uh, there are few of us who are very strong in india so yeah we are being uh, seen i don't i don't want to say we are seen as a threat but uh, yeah yeah they 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 keep watch on us and i don't have any issues with that but uh, the point is uh, we all know that we are very strong so now the the point and the situation is that there are several of us in india who who have established their own leadership and we are at the center nobody can bully uh, and say that no 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 uh, you we will not allow you. It, it's it's not them to decide whether we would be part of their movement it's them to say whether whether they want to be part of our movement that's what i believe yeah um you mentioned uh upper caste women sort of ignoring the issue of caste in in their feminist activism or issues of violence um against women of lower caste and to me that like is a form of violence by itself yes. like if a feminist movement is ignoring um the things that are happening to women and you mentioned also sexual violence against slaves in the US by white mm-hmm. men and you've also mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw are there other civil rights movements uh, around the world that you see parallels with and do they influence your work yeah the 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 movement of the roma people uh, in europe uh, i do have friends from the roma community i visited hungary and romania and uh, they are very strong uh, roma activists with whom we work closely in the sense that we want to uh, because i think you must be knowing that roma people are from india originally so a lot of things are uh, i could see that there is similarity also and uh, they also face discrimination and violence uh, and the, the issues and challenges are similar to us apart from them the jewish community to some extent i would say that the holocaust what happened was much brutal than what we faced so for me is that when i visited first time to us in 97 and uh, i visited holocaust museum and uh, the first lady who helped us also to build up our organization nafsajan was a jewish woman is a jewish woman so uh, when i visited the holocaust museum with her and uh, i uh, i started understanding the the history of the the jewish community and how uh, Mm, the nazi rule and the genocide and the forms of discrimination they faced during that during second world war and before that and then i visited germany and uh, i went to concentration camps i so i could get that feeling of of a kind of similarity in terms of when i work with the dalit communities in india where they are also being targeted and uh, they also face uh, because of our identity how uh, the people are being killed uh, and uh, uh, they are being forced to leave their houses and they also live in a ghetto situation ghettoized situation which is similar to to roma people or jewish people at one time a community in brazil also with whom we collaborated for some time it's a, a black community in in mm-hmm. in brazil so i met women uh, from these communities what are some positive changes that you have seen through your activism and the activism of your allies A lot of positive changes happened. The awareness has increased a lot. Literacy level has gone up because of the work we did. Uh, people have asserting their voices. There's a lot of pride and dignity towards oneself. So 
we don't want to be feel ashamed of what our caste identity is a lot of people now specifically youth and women are coming out and standing up for their rights i think that's very important people's lives have changed in terms of the economic rights many dalits are now in good positions we live in dignified conditions and although i do know that there is a huge population which still needs a lot of support but some change has happened and that is very important for us to to speak about and also when i was a very young woman and when i used to go in the village and i used to see women and girls never speaking out and the work we do at the grassroots really makes a lot of difference because the courage which is coming up and the fear going down it's very important to see the the dominance of the dominant caste the upper caste has reduced the shift is happening but there are certain issues which i already said the one issue of manual scavenging and the other issue of southern part of india which is called as devadasi which means temple prostitution which is still going on and i am worried about that uh, issue also as i travel in those villages and met the women who are forced to become temple slaves at the age of 9 or 10 in and within that uh, community there are young women from who are born out of these uh, temple slaves their daughters are are getting educated and not becoming uh, what their mothers were and that's a very positive sign i haven't heard about temple slavery i have written an article also post prostitution in the name of religion it is part of uh, the hindu religion and how it is been portrayed that it is part of the religion which means that if in your family the first child is a daughter you have to give it to the temple goddess and when there is a ritual which happens where the girl is taken around the entire village and then uh, she is covered with leaves and then they tie a a, a thread uh, in her neck and then uh, she becomes a temple prostitute and then she is sexually abused raped by the dominant caste man and then the girl lives away from her family and their houses are outside the village i don't know you if it's possible for you to come to india maybe in next few years i can take you around it's a very serious issue there are some laws which are created specifically to that particular state so it's in that in the border of karnataka and maharashtra it's in andhra pradesh telangana so these are the states where this practice is going on and at one time it was said that around 5000 girls from the community are being uh, every year are being wow. uh, yeah thrown into this practice i heard about it in in fact in tibet uh-huh. that it is happening too that they do that Manjula, what do you want people both in India and around the world to know about Dalit people? You know, at one time people were not knowing much about Dalit people. I know that because when we intervened into the UN to include caste within the UN agenda, we used to explain each and every uh, diplomat in the in the UN uh, what it means to be a Dalit, how it, we are treated as untouchables. I think uh, people should understand that um, Dalits are are one of the largest population in the world who are affected by a structural inequality. based on caste and and the kind of treatment which the dalits face not only in india but in south asia in caste affected countries such as nepal bangladesh pakistan sri lanka and the diaspora i think uh, people have to understand that this community needs a lot of support a lot of solidarity and a lot of lot of motivation so that we can uh, withstand the kind of oppression which happens in the, each of our countries people have to give us support in terms of in terms of uh, helping the most deprived community within the dalit community in terms of helping them 
to get their children educated i think for uh, me as a for as a rights activist i would say that the most crucial tool of empowerment which dr ambedkar also said was uh, to get educated so so we need education and for that we need solidarity in terms of support resources to help those children from the community young women from the community to get good education uh, so they can stand up on their feet they can earn their own livelihood and defend their rights well my last question was how can we support your activism but you just answered it unless there's anything else you want to add about how we can support you you know i want to set up a fund for dalit women not only dalit but marginalized women in india for the grassroots women activists where they can continue their work you know many times they don't have any resources so there are pe- very few people like us uh, who try to raise resources for them and these women they, they might not have skills like they might not be using computers or they might be they might not be uh, speaking english so but they are doing very good work very genuine work so if we can help these kind of young women who can continue their work sustain themselves build up their organizations so i want to set up a fund uh, 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 an organization an, an organization specifically for the marginalized women in india who are working at the grassroots yeah when you set up this organization please tell us and we will share it with our our activist yeah. networks here Yeah. Uh, Manjula, you. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was a pleasure. My pleasure too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. It was great to meet you. It was such an honor. Yes. My pleasure. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. And I mean, it's amazing of all the work you do and uh, really thank you so much. Wow, that was really moving. Yeah. I was super impressed with her. She's basically dedicated her life to yeah. this incredibly important cause that's so personal to her. Like it's literally yeah. her life. Um, something that really struck me was when she was talking about untouchability. I can't imagine. I mean, like you know, I've faced discrimination, but I can't imagine uh, people not touching something because I touched it. It's just it's so such a foreign idea. Even though I'm like familiar with different types of discrimination. for me it was a discovery to in fact hear that more or less even though it's not allowed anymore or i mean it's prohibited it goes on the same way that's really the sad mm-hmm. uh yeah outcome or whatever what i heard from her is that that in fact it didn't change so uh what are your overall impressions of the book Well, I thought it was really interesting. Um and especially when she was talking about her personal story, um I really wanted to just keep reading and to find out what happened. And um I thought as as a memoir, it was really good. Um where it leaves off from being a memoir, it's a little bit less entertaining, but it's also uh, quite educational being from completely outside of the Indian culture and never having visited from time to time i was kind of swimming i didn't really know what she was talking about but um overall i'm really glad we read it i thought it was really um an interesting and um innovative book yeah i think i had the same general impressions as you like i really enjoyed it i especially liked reading about her personal her personal experience and i wish that she had even talked about it even more and i think that we still have a lot more to learn about caste because uh, at some point you know the the book is about the dalit caste both her personal experience and their history 
But then it seems like even within the cast, like she'll refer to a group that's considered a cast. So that was just a little bit confusing for me because I'm not like very familiar with the cast system. Yeah, I, I join you in what you said. Uh, for me, it was also, I really liked that she talked about her own also experience, that she explained it, or I mean, gave her story. And on the other side, I think it's extremely well-researched. I mean, with all the sources she, she cited, we could go much further by reading it if you go and check out some of the references that she makes which I obviously also I didn't have the time to do and therefore I join you um, Doreen in saying that we could dig much further in that uh, anyways in that subject and what we as foreigners can grasp uh, that uh, this community faces. I also think it was a really important thing for her to do personally because as she points out in the book, the narrative is almost entirely controlled by the upper classes or the upper case. Uh-huh. Um, and they are very fierce defenders of the narrative from what I can understand. Um, so they don't really, you know, like she was talking about at the very end of the book, they don't have much representation of culture, but also just how they um, come out to the outside world until recently, I was kind of like, isn't that illegal now? So because I think that the kind of ruling class would like us to to believe that it's really not a problem in India. That- Francisco, what's something that really stood out to you from the book? Yeah, I will talk about the double disadvantage for Dalit women in regards to violence. I will start by... Um, citation from the book which says I am a Dalit and a woman and am therefore doubly disadvantaged so far as the casteist and patriarchal attitudes of Indian society continue to prevail. I think the next thing which is very important to understand is that in Indian society unfortunately until today is that the body of a woman is considered, as the author says, a storehouse of family honor. So the body doesn't really belong to the woman. Another citation for that, when uppercase men need to remind a Dalit family of their place, they attack and abuse Dalit women. But even when punishment is not the point, uppercase men feel they are entitled to sexual and physical ownership over Dalit women. And this, I think, is just really, it's terrifying because it's this, to even be able to talk about that they think they have ownership over the body of somebody else is terrible. And therefore, we have a lot of different ways of violence that happen to Dalit women. There are, you know, three-sided. One is that it's a, a practice to rape a young Dalit bride on her wedding night. And she can be raped even after that 
if it's from uppercase. Or she can be assaulted during her fieldwork if the landowner is again uppercase. Or there is public humiliation or brutal violence to keep the family of this woman in check. There is a study that from Dalit women speak out in 2014, where there was uh, one of the very few times that there was data collected from about 500 Dalit women uh, in the country regarding caste and gender violence in India. So the next problem that they face, in fact, uh, after that they have been attacked, raped, or whatever it is, is that even if they want to report that, in fact, they have almost no chance. Uh, It's terrible. I will not go into detail regarding that, what are all the different barriers that are put there. Uh, But there is a statistics that is mentioned, which says that if the case is accepted to go to court, then only one out of four rapers get convicted. And for Dalit women, it is 2%, which means Dalit women have not even a chance. And what comes out of that is that it signals to the population that they don't need to fear any consequences from raping a Dalit woman. Uh, Yeah, um, and also having Manjula share her own experience with sexual assault, it's incredibly traumatizing. Yeah, that was really, really quite shocking. Just, you know, so far out of my experience that it just really was, it rocked me to hear. um, So I was going to talk about um, education and how education is is promised to the Dalits in the constitution in the form of what they call a reservation. Anybody who's familiar with the United States system would probably easily recognize this as affirmative action, where they set aside a certain number of seats at universities for Dalit scheduled case and scheduled tribes. So she talks a lot about um, this young man whose name is Rohit Vemula who was sort of the impetus for her to um, come out and to write this book and to have a lot of interaction with other people in her community. And he was a student at Hyderabad University, and he had actually reached out to her on Facebook with a friend request a few weeks before he killed himself. And when he killed himself, he wrote a letter basically um, with this memorable line saying, um, my birth was an accident. And he was actually a scientist in um, studying for his PhD. And he was engaged with a few other students in some activism related to being Dalit. They were, um, there's a a famous thinker and sort of the founder of their movement, who's um, Ambedkar. So there was an incident at school and these students started protesting and they were accused by the administration of being harassing their teachers and um, they were suspended and they were investigated. And eventually I think they were going to be 
basically thrown out of school, but also significantly they withheld all their financial support, which they were supposed to be receiving. And among other things, these students were living off of this money and eating off of it, but also supporting um, their impoverished parents on it as well. So it was a huge issue when they didn't get their study. And so the theme of education is pretty strong in this book also because of what she talks about a lot in her story is how her mother, and I loved her mother, by the way, she basically begged, borrowed, and stole too. <laughs> well, she didn't steal, but it's just an expression. She did everything she could to get her kids educated. And in the case of Yashka, it was pretty spectacular results. But in, in, in fact, her parents came from a background where both of their parents had succeeded in getting out of sort of the poverty of their case and um, the roles of like scavenger, getting involved in the civil service. So they were able to get jobs in the civil service and sort of move themselves into like a, a middle class existence, which was still influenced by their case, but at least they could sort of move in larger society. Her, her mother sends her to private schools, and then she sets her sights on getting into a school in Delhi called St. Stephen, St. Stephen's, which is um, a really elite university. She talks a lot about system universities, uh, but the other students think about the non-case student or lowercase students think about this reservation system. And they claim that it's a handout to the lowercase, okay, and that they don't really need it. And once they get to university, it's easy because of this reservation system. And there have been big protests in the 2000s about it. There was a report issue that said that Dalit students, especially like when they're graduate students or medical students, the, they don't actually get an assigned to faculty advisor. Faculty is indifferent to them. They show up for oral exams and the examiners want a case. And once they know that, they mark their grades down and face all sorts of discrimination. And there's also stories about peer bullying at, at university orientations. They are forced by other students to talk a case. And once they say that they're lowercase, they, they are made to sit on the floor. They're accused of not deserving a spot in the university. It preserves a sense of superiority for the, for the uppercase students, but creates a lot of mental health issues. And um, there are a lot of dropouts and suicides amongst the lower cases. They get this message that university is not for them, despite the fact that it's in the constitution that they, they're allowed to go, they're encouraged to go. But she finds out that once she gets the university degree from St. Stephen's, it's opened doors for her and she has similar access to like what the uppercase people do. And she, when she gets into Columbia University, she even has people pulling strings for her and coming up with money and her with just getting her visa and stuff like that. Just want to add one little thing at the end. Apparently, even in the United States, there's a struggle. And I saw something on Twitter that the students at the Cal State University system were trying to get the administration to, to include case status in the non-discrimination because this is carrying over to the U.S. And actually, Yashka wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times in the last few years talking also about this in spilling over into Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of Indian engineers. Something that struck me in the book, I am unable to get away from my history major roots. Uh, so uh, I noticed a lot of parallels between uh, other civil rights movements and the Dalit rights movement. Dutt herself calls attention to the fact that 
In the 1970s, a group of activists founded the Dalit Panther Party, and that was directly influenced by the Black Panther Party in the U.S., and even the Black Panthers publicly supported them in, a, in their newspaper. They acknowledged Dalit's struggles against Brahminical hegemony. Um, and it also reminded me of segregation in countries like Brazil and apartheid South Africa. And the thing that we keep seeing over and over again is the traditionally privileged class, whether that's uh, because of your gender or because of your race or your class or your ability the privileged classes like to talk out of both sides of their mouth. They, uh, on the one hand, deny that they have any privilege, while on the other hand, actively work to prevent people who are underprivileged from reaching the same level as them. And this is, uh, Manjula brought up as well, how the upper caste feminists, uh, you know, insist that they, there should not be a division. We're all women and therefore we all face the same thing, which we see in the U.S., when it comes to feminist movements where white feminists will always say, why are you always trying to divide us? And it's like, well, because we're not experiencing the same thing. And we're telling you that we're not experiencing the same thing. And that's not that's not unique to the U.S. either. Uh, in a lot of uh, African countries, it's the upper middle class women who are able to advocate and maybe are not fully aware of the fact that they have privileges that their lower class counterparts don't have. So, uh, I mean, I just noticed so many parallels that uh, Yashkar brought up in the book and that Manjula t- also told us about today. Yeah. She explicitly says it, but also just yeah, there was so many so much resonance reading it. Thanks for suggesting the book, Doreen. It was really interesting. Yeah, I'm really glad we read it. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. 